0: Hey, everyone, and welcome back to the Modern Learner's Podcast. I'm Will Richardson, your host, and today I'm excited to welcome Dr. Susan Bloom to the show. Susan is a professor of anthropology at Notre Dame University, and she's the author of one of my favorite reads from the last couple of years, a book titled I Love to Learn, I Hate School, An Anthropology of College, and she's also the author of the blog Learning vs. Schooling, which should give you another indication of why her work intrigues me so much. So, Really looking forward to this conversation, and I hope you enjoy it. Just a quick note before we get started, if you're listening to this before June 13th, 2018, you still have time to register for our fifth Change School cohort. Can't wait to welcome another group of educational leaders from around the world who are thinking hard about reimagination in their schools. So if that sounds like you and you're interested in learning more about that, just head on over to change.school and dig around in there. We'd love to have you and your colleagues join us and enrollment is limited so if you still have time make sure you get registered sooner rather than later and please feel free to email me directly at will at modernlearners.com if you have any questions at all about that work but for now i hope you enjoyed this interview with susan bloom and would love to hear any feedback or thoughts you might have in the comments below thanks for listening everyone enjoy susan thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today
1: Oh, I'm so excited to have this conversation and it's kind of following the model of what I do in my classes these days, which is not necessarily have a rigid um, script or schedule and kind of organically see what happens. So
0: Yeah, it's always more fun that
1: way. Right. It's way scarier, but...
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly right. Exactly right. So listen, I, I, I seriously loved your book and it was, I, I got it on the Kindle and one of the problems with getting it on the Kindle, one of the reasons I get books on Kindle is because I can highlight and I can, you know, um, take out snips and things, but Kindle gives you only a certain number of snips or highlights that you can make. <laughs> and here's one of those books that i reached the limit. So okay. I had to do a whole bunch of jumping around and exports and stuff and then start highlighting again. But um, I really, really enjoyed it. And the reason I enjoyed it is because you didn't hold any punches. Um, and, and I want to start with, with is probably one of the most provocative quotes that I've read in any book for a long time, but certainly in this one. And here's the quote, and I'd just like you to talk about it and, and tell us you know, what your, your sense of it is. But the quote is, schooling as we know it prevents learning. So let's just start there. What, what is your sense of that, and, and how did you come to that conclusion?
1: I came to that conclusion because I've been watching, since I began this line of thinking about 15 years ago, I've been really paying a lot of attention to what's happening in the classroom, outside the classroom, how people talk about learning, and I've also obviously read a lot about how people learn, and the structures we have really do get in the way of deep, authentic, lasting, meaningful learning, and I'm following a whole line of people like John Holt and John Taylor Ghetto and people like that who have shown that when you're just going through the motions of learning for the purpose of getting a credential, getting some sort of extrinsic motive on your checklist, then it doesn't really promote deep learning and the more we talk to students about their gpa the more we talk to them about the credential getting through how much can you cram in the less likely it is that school that actual deep learning is going to happen and i started thinking about this when i was doing research on plagiarism and plagiarism in a sense it's not that i condone plagiarism but plagiarism is a rational Solution to the problem of writing something that people have no interest in. And and if the goal is to get through it as fast as possible and to get a good grade, then it seems that plagiarizing will accomplish some of those goals. It just won't accomplish learning. And the more we stack all of the motivations and what the economists call incentives onto all of this extrinsic stuff, and then we put people in these structures where they aren't choosing what they're learning, where they aren't choosing how they're learning it, um, then learning, if it happens at all, is almost a miracle.
0: So I'm going to ask you a question that I ask everybody, right? And it's not a gotcha question, but I think it's one that's really important when we talk about learning. And that is, so how do you define learning? I mean, what if we're, you know what I'm saying, right? Because a lot of places that I go, there's no real coherence around what that word means. So when you talk about learning, what what is it that you talk about? What is it, what do you mean in that?
1: So learning to me is getting having some sort of change that's lasting and effective and meaningful. The cognitive psychologists talk about it as a permanent change in behavior or something, but for me it's you can learn knowledge, you can learn a skill, you can learn a new attitude, you can learn a new habitus, a new way of being, but all of it involves change. And so if we've all had students tell us, I forgot everything after the exam, you know, like they've wiped the hard drive clean, and that's not learning. And if you take a test, and you do well on the test, but you can't actually apply anything that you've demonstrated on the test, then you haven't actually learned. So to me, learning, it could be intellectual learning. It doesn't have to be that you're going to apply it permanently tomorrow, but, but it has to be something that you retain.
0: Right. So I think it'd be fair to say, you'd probably agree, whether it's college, K through 12, that the kids are learning all the time, right? right? But it may just not be what we want them to
1: learn. Exactly. Yeah. People and so, talk about the hidden curriculum, you know, and the hidden curriculum has many meanings. Sometimes it means learning racism. Sometimes it means learning power structures. It One of the things that really obsesses me is people are learning to be inauthentic. They're learning to fake learning and right. they're learning to make it look like they're doing what the teacher wants. And so to me, that's the most the deepest tragedy of the systems we have is that students learn how to go through the motions, which I think has other damaging and lasting effects.
0: So maybe you could talk about those too in a second. I I remember there was a book about a decade ago called The Game of School, right? And it was all about how kids learn how to operate through school. Mm-hmm. So, you know, one thing, and, and I agree with you. I mean, I have two kids who are teenagers. Well, one's 20 years old now, but I, as they were going through school, I was always wondering what it was that they were learning in a curricular right. sense, right? And I, I came to the conclusion that it wasn't really very much at all. Right. Um, so let me ask you this. I mean, don't you think that most educators know this already? I mean, is it to, you know what I'm asking? I mean, don't you think in our heart of hearts, we kind of look at this and kind of go, yeah, that's probably true, but we're not really sure what to do about it.
1: So I write all of this as somebody who was a true believer before. I didn't actually know that. I, I really thought that this was how you did it, that you take people, the expert tells them what to learn. If they do all that stuff that we've created for them, all the structures of reading and writing and discussing, then they will learn. And if they didn't, the problem was them, not me or the structure. And now, I don't think that's the case anymore. And so I, I think some educators know that, and I think lots of educators don't know that. We believe if we can only get it right, that it'll all be okay, or if we get the right students, or if we give them the right threats or promises or something, or if we get the funding right, or if we get the room right. The room matters, but um, if, we, if, we, if we only tweak it a little, then the promise will be realized.
0: Now, you also wrote, and the quote's going to not be accurate here, but you also wrote the last part of that sentence in terms of, you know, that schools really are inhibit learning. I think the last part of that sentence was something along the lines of, and that's going to lead us to a transformation in the way that we think about education. So talk to me about that, right? Because obviously, as you heard at the beginning, we do change school, and we're right. talking about how change can happen. So what does that transformation look like to you? And maybe a little bit about how you think that's going to roll out?
1: So in the book, I use the idea of a paradigm shift from Thomas Kuhn, the the uh, philosopher of science. And he talked about this period prior to a paradigm shift where, People are trying to save the appearances. They're trying to fix the formula that will predict the trajectory of a planet or something. And you have all of these competing um, explanations for the the observations that are really clear. So everybody sees the world out there. You see fire. How do you explain fire? Is it something burning or is it the extraction of something? And the more the conventional and... Uh, widely shared explanations fail, the more competing explanations there are. And then eventually, people realize that the problem isn't with the observation. The problem is with how the, ex- the observation is explained. And I feel like we're kind of almost there with schooling. Really? There are all kinds of people trying to explain it. I have a whole pile of books, and they each have one solution. The solution is this, or the solution is that. If we only did this, then it will all be fine. If we use technology, if we don't use technology, if we ask questions, if we have problem based learning, if we have design thinking, if we have this and that, all of it is as if to say, here's the magic. And it seems to me that that's evidence that there's a lot wrong, and one single change isn't going to do it. And I've been in touch with a lot of people over the last several years who are trying various things, including you. I'm delighted to be here talking to you and your community. Um, but I think that it shows that we are wildly trying to figure out a solution. You know, we have no excuses academies, and we have progressive education, and we have Um, people who are in outdoor kindergartens where they don't even have a building. And then we have people who are in metal detector entrance high schools that look like prisons. And, you know, we have so many experiments happening and some of them actually do produce things that I think are pretty impressive. I I know the work of Dennis Litke, for instance, Mm -hmm. and I think he does wonderful work. But I think a lot of this is just evidence for me that we are desperately trying to figure out a solution.
0: So what happens, do you think? When? <laughs> um, <laughs> well, I mean, if we were, you know, we're going to be in this struggle, and I agree with you. I, I, I think that there are lots of people who are asking much different questions today from even two, three years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, to me the shift has been from why do we need to do this to how do we begin to do this Mm -hmm. right i think a lot of people are understanding that there are some fundamental things that are wrong with Mm -hmm. the system and also that the world has changed in ways that require us to rethink it but i'm always wondering well so what does the next 5 10 15 20 years look like both for public education and for higher ed how much longer do we struggle in this kind of you know uncertain everybody's trying different things phase until we come out the other side with something that maybe is more coherent or more applicable to i won 't say everyone obviously but has mm-hmm. is more of a of a uh, what uh, you know what word i'm searching for i'm sure but <laughs> where you, it, it looks somewhat we have a different vision of what school
1: mm-hmm. is i don't know exactly how we get there I think we we keep doing what we're doing, and each person has their own solution and you know, one of the tragedies right now is that it's the advantaged people who get the most humane experiments and the people who are the least advantaged get sort of the most conventional models and the most conventional structures, which most people agree are really harmful. So, you know, there's physical research about the, the um, ill effects of sitting for too long and you go to conventional traditional academies and the goal is to get people to sit still and we know sitting still is bad for us we know that people have any sort of learning differences they're they benefit from some kind of movement or fidgeting or trying things kinesthetically or whatever it is and that's not what's happening for the people who probably could really benefit from a little dose of humanity but there are even those people are getting some benefits. There's yoga in urban schools now and right. meditation and mindfulness instead of punishment. And so I think um, it's coming. I don't know exactly how to prognosticate when the moment will be here. But I, the other thing that we should all remember is that the more parents and teachers are raised in conventional structures, the more they think that's what school really is. So it's going to take several generations, possibly, for parents and teachers to really see that what they were raised with is not the only model. And there's a lot of research that shows that when you ask parents what they want for their kids, it usually replicates some image they've had of conventional, successful, highly structured school
0: right now so you're a professor of anthropology yes and i'm just interested in in what does that anthropological lens bring to this conversation i mean what's different kind of about the way that you see it from the way that an educator might see it or or a politician or someone else
1: so in my field anthropology which may be unfamiliar to a lot of our viewers and listeners um anthropology is the study of humans across time and space So we look at everything people have done, every place we can get any information, data, or evidence. So we can go study people across the world, people without writing, people without the um, technology that we're familiar with. We can get information about how scribes were trained in Mesopotamia. We look everywhere and we try to see what that tells us about the many ways humans become People And one of the things we know, and in psychological anthropology, medical anthropology, we know that people are socialized to become the people they are in all kinds of ways, and formal schooling, where you take people out of the stream of life and put them in institutions with age-graded peers, and you give them kind of unmotivated information is really, really rare in the scheme of things for human beings. This is a pretty new model. It is a model that only some people in human history have ever had, even though we go back and we can talk about the history of universities, but we're talking about a very tiny percentage of people who ever were in the University of Bologna or something like that. So when we look at this, we can look at how people are as biological beings, how we have evolved to learn socially, biologically. We can look at the neuroscience, and I think we can see that apprenticeship across time is a very, very common model, or learning by trial and error, or being brought in. Kids having responsibility at very young ages is still common around the world, and it's common in people in, let's say, the U.S. who aren't from middle class families where kids are capable of all kinds of things, but when they come to school, we kind of take away any recognition that they are responsible agents and we make them very passive. And so as an anthropologist, I can bring in all of this comparative information and, and see like what works, where are people happy, where are they thriving? And I would say that in our system, students are not generally thriving even though there are amazing things that happen. So we've just had commencement at Notre Dame and some of our students are extraordinary and they will go on and become amazing creators and amazing citizens. And so I, 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 I wanna make it clear that it's not the case that nothing good ever happens as a right. result of school, Right. But, but it's a very odd way of learning and so I think anthropology reminds us of that
0: which is probably why you like what Dennis is doing with big picture schools right because it, it really is um, a way of getting kids out into the community of doing real work of learning on the job of pursuing things that they care about which I think most educators at the end of the day agree are all great conditions for for kids or anybody to learn in right so um that's, that's a really interesting kind of way of looking at it. And I think it adds, adds some different perspective, obviously, and some value as well to, to the way we talk about it, just kind of in an education sense. Because in education, obviously, it's all about the score. It's all about data. It's all about the things that can be measured. I think you had another quote in the book that said something about, you know, the, the uh, high stakes tests that we now have are particularly, um, I think your word was inimical to learning um, and and can you talk a little bit about that? I mean, in assessments, I, I don't want to get into the grades thing quite yet because I think that's a whole nother <laughs> like part of this that I find really interesting, but just from the way that, you know, the way that we measure learning, right? I asked you to define learning earlier. Um, I'd love to ask some politicians and some policymakers how they define it because of the tests that they're creating and having kids take are any indication it's probably not on par with what, the way you and I think about it.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, so, Um, I have a lot to say about high-stakes testing, but I also want to put this in perspective. I was actually originally trained as a China scholar, and so for um, 40 years, I've been studying China, and China invented high-stakes testing, basically. They invented the civil service examination. They invented the idea of anonymous tests that are done in segregated rooms where they're evaluated by other people. And China is now doing a lot of soul searching about their high stakes tests. The Daokao is the examination that gets high school students into higher education. When I first went to China in the 80s, 3% of the population went to higher education. And now it's considerably higher than that. Mm -hmm. And like in the US and other Um, In developed countries, people believe that higher education credentials are the kind of ticket to the middle class, and so people want their kids to do that, but at the same time, the preparation for the high-stakes testing is so rigorous and so grueling that students spend in their entire childhood basically in preparation for their one examination. It is the SAT on steroids. The SAT has consequences, but not like this, because we have a lot of schools where it doesn't really matter what your SAT score is, and we have a lot of virtually open enrollment schools and a lot of not very selective higher education institutions, even though if you read the media, you get the sense that everybody's trying to go to Harvard and Stanford. But that's not, in fact, at all the case. But in in China, people are doing these practice examinations. They're learning these tricks over and over again to the point that their health suffers. They have high suicide rates. They have very high rates of depression, as we do in this country, as people are so panicked about their futures. And in China, people are very concerned that it also leads to a lack of creativity, a lack of innovation, and people are simply responding in a rote way. And I should say that China has had this conversation before. About 100 years ago, they were really trying to rethink their examination system. And that gave rise to a whole bunch of other political transformations and even revolutions. That hasn't happened in the U.S. But I think if you look at how high-stakes tests are normed, and how they are created and how they are evaluated, you can see that this is not really deep learning. It's you're learning tricks. And I've had students talk to me recently, as, as they begin to trust me, they, they confess a little bit about some okay. of their other educational experiences. And one of them said to me this year, you know, it's as if they're trying to trick us on the multiple choice tests. I thought, well, they have to. Because if they gave you a plausible answer, you would know that that's the answer, just like in real life, you know, and, but if you're trying to really sort everybody and really make sure that you have some kind of bell curve or something, you have to really weed out all of the other possible options. And when I used to give those quizzes myself, I remember being so proud of how clever I could be to give (laughs) these misleading triple negative questions so that people might get the wrong answer. And now that I've had this kind of change of heart, I can't really believe I used to do that. But that was what we were all raised with. And so high-stakes testing that really teaches you how to outthink this testing structure does not really lead to anything desirable.
0: I think people think it measures learning, and to some extent it probably does measure some skills that kids have, but I would agree with you that it, it just, the, the detrimental effects are are we- far outweigh any positive effects, especially thinking about different ways we might go about that. I was actually just briefly in Singapore a couple months ago in the taxi cab driver on the way to the airport, <laughs> looked out the window and he said, you see any kids? And I was like, I don't see any kids anywhere. And he goes, that's because they're all in their four hour tutoring session right after school, because right. they have to get you know, that score. And it was just really sad and very poignant actually that you know, here are all these basketball courts and parks and everything and there's just, <laughs> there aren't any kids around. Um, so, you know, the, the, again, a couple other points in your book, one that I found interesting and especially the way you worded it was about higher ed. And, about how that seems to be kind of the path that um, most people aspire to in terms of, you know, uh, when you're in, in high school or parents certainly want their kids to aspire to it. Um, but he had a quote in there. You said, the idea of higher education college as a goal for all young adults is certainly familiar, but in this chapter, I aim to make it strange. <laughs> and I love that. So can you help us make that strange? I mean, what, what, what is the kind of counter narrative to higher ed for all? <laughs>
1: Well, first of all, I I was playing on this idea that in anthropology, we always try to make the strange familiar and the familiar strange.
0: There you go. Okay.
1: So we go around the world and we see headhunting and that's very strange. But when you get into the mindset of the people who are doing it, it begins to have a kind of logic. So then it becomes more familiar. But then the harder task is always to defamiliarize our ordinary lives to get us to ask questions about the stuff we completely take for granted. And so it never occurred to me before I had this journey that maybe college isn't so good for everybody. Maybe, you know, people like me, I love school. I'm such a good student, you know, I learn that way. Tell me what to read, tell me what to write, I can do it and it'll work. But And there are still obviously some people like that. But to force everybody to work that way seems to me really tragic. And there are some unexpected things that almost everybody learns in school, maybe by having a roommate who does something interesting or maybe by encountering a movie or, or something that you wouldn't have done Otherwise, but it seems to me that that's a very expensive way to have these random experiences and you could have them by being an apprentice at an organic farm just as much as in a political science class that you're taking to get the credit so that you can get the requirement out of the way. And I've talked to parents who say, and to students who say, I really hated all my classes. I lived for the parties or I lived for my, you know, activity, there are people who love the classes. And and that's a wonderful thing. And to the extent that deep learning happens in well-thought-out classes, they should probably still exist. And I like to think that sometimes I do some things that actually lead to learning, too, so that it's not an entire waste of time for all of us. But, But I think that for so many students, it's a very long and very expensive road. And maybe not everybody should be on that road.
0: You write a little bit about credentialing, and I'm sure you've read Kevin Carey's latest book on on that whole thing on signaling and, and how interesting all that is. I mean, what's your take on that? Do you think that, that basically, even though four years of college for many kids may not be a very deep learning experience? I mean, is it still worth it to get the credentials so that you know you are signaling to potential employers that you're ready to go to work
1: it's it's you're also signaling that you're their kind of person right you're the kind of person who can stick to things and who it, it, people aren't willing to admit this but who are of the same social class as the people who are doing the hiring and so in some sense, it's a winner take all system so if the employers people with credentials and they want to hire people like themselves, then the employees also have to have those credentials. And I would not, let's say, advise a student from a disadvantaged background who's gotten into a good school not to go necessarily, but if what we're after is equality, everybody going to college is not going to make everybody equal. So I think there is a little conversation happening about vocational training and the trades and people realize you can make more money as a plumber than you can as a teacher probably. And so maybe not everybody actually needs to go to college, but, but there is a sense that worthy people go to college and have college degrees. There was an article in the New York Times several years ago about how file clerks have to have BAs. And the employers might as well ask for BAs for file clerks because there are so many people with BAs. So why not pick one of those, even though the BA isn't really required at all for the job itself.
0: So, what do you think of of uh, of badges and you know like like other markers for separate skills in terms of aggregating into some type of credential you know that maybe is a different path from what you get um, at college? Do you think that's? A
1: I think that's an interesting alternative. I, I think it could end up being almost exactly the same as credentials only with a different form and a different number. You know, depending on what you're measuring. If you're, all, if you're similarly pre-determining what people are learning and how you measure what they're learning, then it sort of doesn't matter if they're getting an A or three credits or the degree or a badge. But if we want shortcuts in how to evaluate all the people out there, a badge could be interesting. I, I like it just because it challenges the status quo, right. but I'm not sure it's the solution either.
0: Yeah, I think it's a, another one of those gaps that a lot of people are trying to innovate in, and it's going to be interesting the way it rolls out. Okay, so let's get to the the other big chunk of this, right? And that is the quote, I think, along the lines of, if you could get rid of one thing and one thing only, it would be to get rid of grades. Mm-hmm. And as someone who taught writing for 22 years in high school, I can't tell you, <laughs> when I read that, I was like, amen, right? Because yes. that was the worst, hardest, most just just terrible thing that I felt like I ever had to do was at the end of the day, say to some kid, well, you're a B or a D, you know, whatever. So talk a little bit about how you came to that conclusion, some of the impacts that uh, you articulate in the book around, the, you know, what grades do to kids and do to people in general, and maybe, you know, kind of along the same lines, what we were just talking about, what some alternatives might be.
1: So I really came to this by reading Alfie Cohen's book, Punished by Rewards, which in some ways changed my life, really. It it really helped me see that you can't get it right. It's not a matter of having a better scale or a better rubric or being more humane and kind about it. As long as there are grades, you are giving people the message that There's a single uniform scale and they are going to be evaluated according to it. The history of grades, which people have written about quite a lot now, is the same as the history of industrial um, agriculture, which I'm passionate about, and also factory uh, manufacturing and things like that. So it all implies uniformity. And so that alone, philosophically, I object to. It also, there have been a lot of studies that show if you give students comments and you give them a grade, they will only look at the grade. So even though as a writing teacher, you knocked yourself out, staying up really late, writing all...
0: A lot of ink on comments, right?
1: Yes, and students see the comments as justifying the grade, which is the real measure.
0: And, and probably teachers write the comments to justify the grade, right, too.
1: Exactly. And so obviously, we, there are schools without grades. And mm-hmm. there are whole colleges. My daughter went to Hampshire College, which doesn't have grades. They have narrative evaluations. And so students evaluate themselves, and teachers evaluate themselves. I also encountered a book called Hacking Assessment by Star Saxstein which basically after my book, I Love Learning, I Hate School, came out, I realized that I was going to have a hard time going back into the classroom doing things I didn't believe in. And so I, was re- I spent the whole summer before I went back agonizing about how I was going to do it. And I had done various things along the way. I had not given people the grade... I hadn't told them the grade that I was giving them on small assignments and I was having them do self assessments. And so I was trying to get on this ungrading path. But after I read Sachstein's book, I decided I was going all the way. And even though I'm in a conventional system and at the end of the semester, I am obliged to give my students a grade. I don't give grades along the way. And it's so much more work. And, but I think it's, much more um, effective as a learning experience. Students don't always like it, especially at the beginning. They really are so used to having verification and validation of their merit, especially high-achieving students who have been told all their lives, you are an A student, you are worthy. But I, have found it really has transformed my teaching in ways that I like. We don't talk about grades. I give them a lot of freedom. I give them a lot of feedback. They give themselves feedback. We talk about their goals. It, it's part of a whole system, but it has been very effective for me.
0: Do you negotiate it at the end or?
1: They suggest a grade at the end. Right. And then I make the ultimate decision and i usually agree with them occasionally i don't
0: so um you know i'm totally aligned with what you're saying but as a parent when my kids were in school i couldn't help but go into the parent portal you know and look at the grade to get some snapshot of how they were doing even though i knew intellectually and and otherwise that didn't really tell me anything about what they were learning. They right. told me whether or not they were succeeding at getting through it, you know, playing the game, whatever else. I mean, so what would be a better alternative for parents? I mean, or, or what would be some other ways that we could make those, uh, the assessment of learning more transparent, right? Because at the end of the day, it's gotta go beyond just what happens in a classroom. Um, at least, you know, i I always advocated for my kids to publish. Um, right as often as possible whether that was through a blog or whether it was submission or whatever else because i i really felt like a real audience was much more important than just me yeah. so have any ideas on if we're not going to do grades what do we do
1: well i believe i like the idea of portfolios that people create you, you you collect evidence of what you've learned and done with what you've learned so this past summer and for for Several summers, I've been involved in an internship program in the community, and the students do these real-life projects. A lot of them are engineering projects, but they have social and economic and cultural dimensions to them, too. And the students have to do a lot of problem-solving and brainstorming, and they have to learn technical stuff because they have to solve these problems. And at the end of 10 weeks, they have a rain garden, or they have a tree nursery, or they have a website that will allow parents to or or people in the community to learn something and so and they've given presentations they've done a lot of things to show what they've learned it's so much richer than anything you could ever show on a test or even in an essay and yeah it's harder to package it's harder to send that documentation along to the next level of schooling but but I think if you can have a portfolio like an artist does, then you can sh- really show what, what has been learned.
0: So as we as we wind, wind down here in the last few minutes, um, you know, if we could assume, let's say that um, school leaders have come to the same conclusion that you and I have, that there's this gap between learning and schooling, that the two really don't, one doesn't equal the other, mm-hmm. let's say. Um, and that they've been willing to kind of stand up and raise their hand and say, yeah, we, we have a gap and we need to fix it. I mean, how would you counsel um, leaders in K-12 schools, at least, um, as to, you know, some starting points for that? I mean, what might they do uh, to, to move that conversation in a different direction, do you think?
1: Well, I think they need to be compassionate to their teachers, who are really scared often to try new yes. things, and okay. they the teachers have a lot of internal resistance. I have internal resistance still. I've been on this path for a very long time, and still sometimes I battle myself like, what? You didn't do the reading? And you know, out of the same at the same time, I can say, well, it wasn't interesting to them. somehow they didn't think it was useful or whatever. So the teachers may be really afraid to try things. The students may have resistance and you guys have parents to deal with too, and the public. People think they know what school looks like. And if they come in and there's chaos, um, how can anybody justify that? So one, approach might be to do small pilot programs. You know how Google has the 20% free time, you know, one one day a week, people get freedom to do whatever they want. Maybe there could be a one day a week project and it wouldn't have to be graded and there didn't wouldn't have to be a curriculum or they could try these things that would show people how it might work if you give students some freedom. But but it takes so much thought to create an environment where the students feel like it's real for them and where it's not just pretend. You know, It's not pretend learning for a pretend project, but it's real. So if you give them responsibility, I, I love gardening and I love all of the organic food movements and all of the school gardening projects. If you give students some land and let them try to figure out what to plant there and how to figure out what to plant, you know. Where do you do research about how to plant? Maybe where the teachers don't know any more than the kids do, and so everybody learns together and they have to figure it out. And if there are these rich real life experiences, you know, agriculture teaches you everything. It teaches you math and chemistry and biology and economics and politics and it's joyful and it's aesthetic and you can write about it and you can film it and if you take some projects like that maybe they could be persuasive but top down school change i think is just as difficult as top down learning it, you know it's it's the same problem that the teachers have to feel motivated to want to change they they have to feel safe risking things and I know nobody feels like they have time because they have the standards and they have to accomplish certain things and the kids have to take these tests and they have to go to college. And so it's very difficult. But I think if school leaders could understand learning and transformation themselves in a really, really deep way, they may be able to communicate that to their staff. But but they shouldn't be surprised if there's a lot of resistance Sorry, I can't hear you.
0: Sorry, I was on mute because someone's mowing their lawn next door. um, The
1: sounds of (laughs) summer,
0: yes. Yeah, I know, Um, which is nice, actually. But um, So, I mean, to what extent do you think, and this will be the last question, but to what extent do you feel like this ability we have now with the web to have a lot of agency over what we learn and when we learn it and who we learn it with and all that type of stuff? I mean, to what extent do you think that, educators need to have a grip on that to, uh, this is kind of a softball question, I think, but they have to understand that in order to contextualize their work differently for this particular moment. I mean, I think you'd agree, right, that kids are coming in to classrooms now, it doesn't matter how old they are pretty much, right, anywhere from like eight to 28 and and older, um, those wouldn't be kids, but you know what I'm saying, they're coming into classrooms now um, with a whole bunch of things that they love to learn about and access to continue to learn about it. And if things aren't working out in the classroom, they just can go and go off in their own direction and pretty much pursue those things. So, I mean, how, how difficult or how challenging is that, do you think, for educators at every level right
1: now? Oh, I think we have to take that into account. It's it's a, an affordance, as the um, psychologists talk about it, of our world, is that we have access to almost everything anywhere we are i i really love kathy davidson's new book the new education the new learning the new education um and she has a chapter on against technophobia we shouldn't be afraid of technology but she has another chapter right after that against technophilia we shouldn't think that technology is the answer either and i think there there's a lot to say here but I think we often overestimate our students' skill with technology. They have some skills, but they are—they do what they're familiar with. And right. I think we have an obligation to move them along, which means we have to know how to do those things. I mean, I have my students doing podcasts and videos and infographics and all kinds of things that I don't necessarily know how to do very well myself, but I know how to find resources so that they can get help. But, so I think assuming that they already know how to do it is an error. We also have to show them how to f- access high-quality material and how to evaluate things. I remember 10 years ago and there was all that moral panic about Wikipedia, and it was forbidden at really reputable colleges. Right. You cannot use Wikipedia. And if you talk to people of a certain generation, they will probably still tell you, you can't use Wikipedia. Well, you can use Wikipedia, but you have to know what it is and how to use it and all of that. Students are adept in some sense, but we can make them more adept at learning through things. I've often asked students, how did you learn how to bake a pie? Or how did you learn how there's this thing people do with like twirling your writing implement You can go on YouTube and get tutorials on how to do that. That's really great. Our students could contribute to that. They could make tutorials. They would have to learn something to do it. So I think putting blinders on and saying only books, only scholarly journal articles, that's really silly. But there is so much out there. We have to really be very knowledgeable about how to use it and what to use it for.
0: I would agree and it's, uh, I, I find it just an interesting time, right? As challenging as it is, I think the opportunities are pretty amazing and, and the questions are huge though for educators and I really appreciate you taking some time today to, to kind of talk about those and to deepen some of those for me. Um, again, the title of the book is I Love to Learn, I Hate School and Anthropology of College, Dr. Susan Blum. Um, thanks so much for coming today, really appreciate it and sincere best wishes in your work to uh, move education forward.
1: Thank you. Good luck to you, too. Let's work together on this.
0: That'd be great. Thanks, Susan. Um, Don't forget, go to Change School, change.school, and check out what we're doing. Cohort 5 just opened up today, and we'd love to have you join us um, down the road. So thanks very much for joining us, and we'll see you on the next podcast.